trees went out to name themselves the king. This is Grace Talks, a production of Martin UMC, an open and inviting United Methodist Church in Martin, Michigan, a co-charge with Shelbyville United Methodist Church, which worships on Sunday at 11 a.m. Martin worships Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and we would love to see you there. But the olive tree said, should I stop making all that I know as human beings? Our scripture text today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the, by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by, no, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. But then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me words that I may go also and pay homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. In Matthew 22, we find one of Jesus' parables, that of the wedding banquet. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a wedding banquet. A king is throwing a feast to celebrate his son's wedding, and he sends out his slaves to those who have been invited by saying, Look, I have prepared dinner. My oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything's prepared. But those who received their invitations made light of the message, and they went away, some to their jobs and others to their business, while still others seized the messengers and killed them. The king, in rage, sent for those former guests who had killed his messengers to be killed and their cities to be burned, and he said to his surviving slaves, The wedding is ready, but those we invited were unworthy, and so go into the main street and invite everyone you find to the feast. And so they went out and spread the word, and in time the hall was filled with guests. I'm not sure about any of you, but one of my greatest pet peeves is when I make plans with someone only for them to cancel. Now I understand as an adult that things come up and we get busy and I'm able to rationalize and come to grips with it, but yes, when someone cancels plans, especially something that had been in place for months, I have a tendency to feel upset. And in a sense, this is what our parable is getting at today. A king is throwing a feast and the invited guests refuse to come. To expand on it then, the kingdom of God, which this is like, is an offered way of life where there stands this mass invitation, and yet for one reason or another, people keep ignoring it. People busy themselves on other matters of work and life and business. They provoke wars and they pursue money. They pursue things contrary to the kingdom living we're called to. An obvious connection is the people of Israel, as this is one of Christ's constant refrains throughout the Gospels. The people... 
in his words, have ignored the messengers. Not only have they ignored them, they've often killed them. They've rejected and they've killed the prophets, and the people have been led not towards life, but rather death. The one-to-one -one analogy, then, is, to the, is that the murdered slaves in this passage, like the rest of the slaves, represent the prophets, the messengers, the announcers of the kingdom of God. The parable tells us how the intended guests to the feast ignore the message, and so the king throws open the gates and begins to invite everyone in. One of the most central and recurring themes of the gospel is that of greater inclusion. Someone new is always invited in. The charge Jesus lays out to the people is that they've killed the prophets, they've ignored the messengers, and so the image becomes one of greater invitation. Because the original guests have refused to enter the gates, they've been thrown open wide and all are welcome. And so when we take this message of inclusion, of invitation, and we consider it further, we look uh, we look towards the text today and the message of the wise men. What does the wise men have to tell us in regards to invitation? There are a number of discrepancies. Here's the educational part of the sermon. There's a number of discrepancies between the two birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. Discrepancies that really shouldn't bother us too much if we refrain from reading the Gospels as history and biography in the way we tend to understand them and instead read them as history and biography in the way the ancients understood them. As the ancient people understood them, biographies, the Gospels, are not one-to-one -one examination of events as they are broad overviews that sought to capture the character of the person examined. And so where Luke speaks of shepherds and censuses, of prophets in the wombs and in the temple courts witnessing to the good news of Jesus' birth, Matthew speaks of the Magi. Matthew speaks of the systematic slaughter of children. What ends up happening, though, is that we end up becoming so fixated on gospel cohesion that we sacrifice the message either gospel is attempting to present. The Epiphany, which we celebrate today, is one of those instances in which we have been given a story that we really need to slow down with when we read. Because what has happened is that we've combined the two stories of Matthew and Luke, and we've confused ourselves. Even as even I had to reread both gospel narratives several times over so as to remember which event happens where. What has happened is that we've combined the two narratives so much that we ended that we've ended up with a convoluted mess where shepherds and kings trip over each other as they attempt to worship surrounded by cute barnyard friends all while new while all while a new and exhausted mother is being accosted by a small drummer boy badly beating a drum in her face. For the mothers in the audience, I can't imagine anyone anything worse in my mind than to have to go through all the hours of pain in childbirth only to then be surrounded by a dozen guests and a young boy beating a drum in your face. Let's face it, you just want to sleep. Epiphany, though, the visit of the Magi, contains a different message than the visit of the shepherds, and when we combine these two stories, when we combine these two narratives, we have a tendency to miss the importance of either narrative. While the shepherds in Luke tell us the kingdom is first and foremost for the lowest among us, the outcasts, as the shepherds, like our own modern-day day laborers in the fields are, the Magi in Matthew informs us that the kingdom is firstly recognized by those outside of our people group, outside of our tribe. To take it further, what we find when we look to the Magi from the east is that much of what we repeat in our old stories is most likely wrong. And so here we have another interactive ser sermon. Yay, I know it's everyone's favorite. 
And so if, you'll if you're so inclined to pull out your bulletins and use that empty space on the front to write down your answers, or just think of them in your head, whatever. So here's the four questions. One, how many wise men were there? Two, when did they arrive? Three, where was the holy family when the wise men arrived? And four, who were the wise men? Answer time, how many wise men were there? We don't know. The text presented to us doesn't answer the question. We're told of three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, but we're not told how many people are carrying these gifts. And so while the dominant tradition has worked with three, because there's three gifts, some traditions, such as the Syriac Orthodox Church, one of the oldest traditions in the faith, say that as many as 12 were present. When did they arrive? Again, the dominant tradition of our, pa of our pageants and our movies place them there on the night of the birth, but again, we don't know. What we can determine is that it wasn't the night of the birth, and in the same way we can determine it wasn't even likely in the first year of Jesus' life. The text tells us that Herod orders the execution of children two and under in accordance to the star's first appearance, and so if we assume that the star was first seen when, when Jesus was born, then we they might then assume that Jesus was around the age of two when the Magi appeared. 3. Where were Mary, Joseph, and Jesus at the time? Now again, the image we always get is of the wise men sitting at the stable surrounded by sheep and other animals, but the, she but the text tells us they arrived at the house of Mary and Joseph, which suggests that, in Matthew at least, the family was from Bethlehem, and only moved to Nazareth after they were displaced and forced to as they fled into Egypt as refugees when Herod ordered their execution. Finally, who were the wise men? Well, they weren't kings as the, imaginary, as the imagery in the song would paint them out to be. Rather, they were most likely Zoroastrian priests. Zoroastrian remains one of the world's old, oldest religions. It dates back to sometime around the 5th century BCE. These Zoroastrian priests, then, were men of science in their day. They were astronomers, men who studied the stars and read their signs in ways that we can only pray, play pretend at in our modern society with our horoscopes and moon signs. The long and short of it, the reason for all of this information is simply to say that these men, these magi, well, they were neither Jewish nor kings, and they were certainly not Christian. In fact, the only king who shows up in this story is the one who wants Jesus' head. Meanwhile, the Jewish people aren't looking for a Messiah who looks anything like Jesus. They're looking for a ruler. These magi, then, were not members of the faith group of Jesus, and yet they, in Matthew at least, were the first to come and pay respect. The world, our nations, our cultures, pushes us towards tribalism. It pushes us towards claiming a sense of who is in and who is out, and yet what the gospel does, what the message of the kingdom of God does, is that it tells us something different. We are all one family. All of, us are, all of us are included, and when those who receive the initial invitation don't show up and don't have an interest, the doors are open wide and more people are invited in. And the truth of the danger for the prophets and the messengers is the same now as it was then. Being a messenger, being an announcer of the kingdom of God is dangerous because power, rulers and authorities, remember that which is not flesh and blood, as Paul would tell us in Ephesians, power does not respond well to a message of a different kingdom, at least not if that kingdom has any real power or authority in this world. 
Power, after all, needs someone to blame. Power needs a scapegoat, a villain, an enemy. Power needs to other someone so that it can preserve its power. Now I say messengers of a kingdom of a, a, a messengers of a kingdom with authority are threatened because power is willing to accept a message of a kingdom provided that kingdom plays no real role in this world. But as soon as that other kingdom infringes on this one, as soon as that kingdom infringes on the status quo of our world, then that messenger that kingdom's messenger is in danger. And so a messenger like Billy Graham, a messenger like Joel Osteen, they're under no real threat. They're under no real worry from power. As the, kingdom he, as the kingdom they speak of is separate enough from our world so as to not incur the wrath of the powers that be, but when someone like Martin Luther King Jr. with a message of a kingdom that directly influences the world, both economic, political, and social, well, he has to be watched. He has to be killed. It would seem as though we're still killing our prophets. The message of the kingdom of God, the message of Christ, is a message of inclusion. It's a message of peace in a violent world, a message of the cessation of hostilities, the death of an eye-for-an-eye eye mentality, and the birth of forgiveness, grace, and love. But we, find this but we find in this passage that there is a price a messenger pays for such a world. Christ, the king who proves all kings to be nothing, well, he meets power, and power responds by doing its best to do what power always does to those who, preaches, those who preach a different kingdom. Power orders them killed. When power meets Jesus Christ, it seems that power will inevitably attempt to crucify the Christ, to exterminate and silence. And so we end by saying the message of the Epiphany is the same now as, the sa as it's always been. It's the same as the message of the Gospel. The Kingdom of God is at hand. The Kingdom is open to all and it welcomes all. And when power loses someone to blame, when power loses the ability to claim others as outside the Kingdom, the ability to label other people enemy, then power becomes powerless. Christ's greatest act was not becoming the Lord of the universe, not putting on a crown and destroying his enemies. It was pouring him out himself out fully in love rather than responding with hate and violence to a world that showed him the same. May we learn to live in that same way. Amen.